How is it possible to find happiness and positivity during one of the most uncertain and devastating years in recent history? Neil Pazrisha is a New York Times bestselling author and a positive psychology expert whose work focuses on just that. In this episode, Neil shares simple techniques we can all use to rewire our brains for happiness and how to find small wins at home and at work that re-energize all areas of your life. In a production note, you might notice that the audio quality on these episodes are a little bit less than they usually are. Please bear with us as we're trying to do all this over Zoom now. This is Three Things with Neil Pazrisha. So listen, let's let's get into it. Um, you spent over a decade at Walmart as the head of L&B. Um, and then you walked away to focus on discovering what, make, what makes people happy. Uh, now you serve, and I'm going to read the title so I get it right, Director of the Institute of, for Global Happiness. Um, the last time we talked, you've written a book called The Happiness Equation. Mm-hmm. Now you just released your awesome but really, this has to be a tough time to be you, but probably never a more important time to be you talking about happiness. Uh, what is your assessment of how people are doing? Yeah, so just zooming out from a very high level right now, every single mental health index we have is skyrocketing off the charts in their measures of the number of people who are saying they are experiencing loneliness, anxiety, depression, The whole suite that we can measure of of mental health challenges is definitely ratcheting up quickly. And you don't need me to tell you this. Look around, talk to friends and family. How hard is it right now to visit the aging parents or, you know, the friends that you used to get together with? Are you already worried about the, the sort of Christmas dinner that you used to have with your high school friends? And you're like, I don't know if we can do that this year. So we're all experiencing that. But at the same time, Rick, the messages I have are maybe more important than ever. You know, the principle I shared down at Culture Fest was this one. I said, we grow up with the incorrect model taught to us. We are taught that great work leads to big success and leads to being happy. Come on, study really hard, then you'll get good grades. And if you're Indian, you become a doctor, right? Or work really hard, get promoted, be happy. And what I was putting forward in the happiness equation that the models actually reversed. We need to train our brains to be happy first, and then we do the great work and the big success follows. So this is based on Sonia Lebomirsky's work published in Harvard Business Review. When you show up with a positive mindset, I'm not saying it's easy, but when you do that, you're 31% more productive, you have 37% higher sales, and you're three times more creative. Success follows in the form of both your career and your longevity. Okay, have people live longer. So am I saying it's easy right now? No, definitely not. Make no mistake. This is the craziest time ever. The first pandemic in 100 years. At the same time, I think the model that I shared is even more important. How do we think about priming these brains that we have for positivity, even just to get a smidge better if we're feeling in a dark place? So that sounds terrific in theory, right? What are some of your hacks? around, you know, really helping your brain come up with positive thoughts in a time like this. Sure. So if you drank a bottle of wine before bed every night, slept within 10 feet of a bottle of wine and drank from a bottle of wine when you woke up every morning, what would we call you? You're an alcoholic. Right now we are all phonaholics now and we don't even notice. I don't want to hear that it's your alarm clock. I know where you live. I know you have access to a dollar store to get yourself an alarm clock. Put that phone somewhere else. And when you wake up in the morning, I want you to start with a pen and a piece of paper. And I want you to start with the practice that I call two minute mornings. Okay, let that focus there. Two minute morning. Did you know, Rick, that the average person is awake for one 
thousand minutes a day. Based on research, I can tell you that if you take two of them to write down these three things, I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on, you will be priming your brain for positivity for the rest of the day. Look, let's take them one by one if you don't mind, Rick. Is that okay? Let's do that. But listen, before we do yeah. that, I would yeah. like to, uh, you just inspire me. I want I want to... I want to set out a challenge because I the, my phone is my alarm and that's my that's BS because I never use my alarm uh, and it sleeps next to me but you know it's just more habit. I'm committing right now that through the end of the year, right? So 60 days, that, yeah. that is enough to form a habit. My phone will not be in my bedroom, and I am going to challenge everybody at RV to start there. Let's just make a global commitment. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. Let's see. We're going to call you back and see if it really helped or not. And now let's go back to the three questions, which I like. Absolutely. Rick, thank you so much for your leadership. Look, it doesn't matter where your cell phone lives. It matters where your charger lives. Put it somewhere awkward, uncomfortable, inconvenient, in a bathroom, in a kitchen, in a garage. The extra 30 steps to get to it at night in the morning will prevent you from doing it. When you think about that late night email you want to send at 1045, you won't. You're like, oh, I don't want to go downstairs in my boxer shorts. And same thing in the morning, you're like, who cares what Trump tweeted? I, I got a pen and a piece of paper. And when you write down those three things, let me tell you about them right now, okay? I will let go of how much screen time my kids are getting. I will let go of the fact that I wore a disposable mask three times because I didn't have an extra one in the van. You know, I will let go of the fact that I haven't seen my parents and I'm not going to see them at Thanksgiving for the first time in forever, Right. Catholics, you guys will know what I'm talking about. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. You know the Catholic confession chamber? Ancient Catholicism, though, it's Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam. Most world religions have confession built in. But according to National Geographic, the world's fastest growing religion is none. I'm saying that again. The world's fastest growing religion is none, no religion. So in this increasingly secular society, we need to put a confession practice into our day. Don't just believe me. Science Magazine has a great report by Dr. Brassen, B-R-A-S-S-E-N, called Don't Look Back in Anger. Yes, it's the same name as the Oasis song. It shows that minimizing regrets as we age increases contentment. The first thing I want you to do, and if you guys are brave, throw it in the comments. What's something you need to let go of right now? I will let go of. And now once you've cleansed your brain first thing in the morning, the next thing I want you to do is write down, I am grateful for. Yeah, it's hard. You know why it's hard? It's not your fault. You got an almond-sized thing in your brain. It's called your amygdala. That thing secretes fight or flight hormones all day, all day. It's why you rubberneck on the highway. It's why when you'll get the doctor blood test back, you want to see if you got a high cholesterol, you get a math test back from the teacher, you look for the wrong thing. For 200,000 years, this amygdala has been awesome. You're a stick snap in the forest in the middle of the night. You're like, is there a bear out my tent? Yes, it's important that you have this. But right now, social media and news media are constantly bombarding us and feeding us with negativity because they know we can't not look. If this is a bicep curl, then I'm grateful for is a brain curl. What is some tiny, small, specific thing you are grateful for? Emmons and McCullough say, if you can write down 10 things you're grateful for a week, you're not just happier, but you're physically healthier after a 10-week period. Guys, don't write down my husband. Say, when my husband Rodriguez put the toilet seat down. Don't write down my dog. 
Say when my labradoodle trooper learned how to shake a paw, make it specific. That is the brain curl you need to do. Carve the neural pathway for positivity. And when you're done that, the number three thing is, I will focus on. Who else has an endless could do, should do, would do list right now? Oh yeah, it's overwhelming right now. We have the highest ever cognitive load that we've ever experienced. Masks, visits, schools, everything's chaos. So you know what you need to do? Carvo will do from your endless could do and should do. Roy Baumeister at the University of Florida says we all have decision fatigue. Make the one thing you will focus on that annoying thing. <laughs> I will call my cable company and finally get faster internet. I will schedule my first dental appointment in two years. My teeth feel furry. I will clean out that closet. I will answer that email from Rick that's been fossilizing in my inbox since Monday. I got to get to it before the weekend. Whatever it is, what is one thing you'll focus on? These three things add up to something I call the two-minute morning practice. Just grab a pen and a piece of paper. It's just the same three things every single day. How do you do that? How do you get happier? Do this every morning. Ditch the phone. That was a lot of good stuff. Uh, my daughter, the confession, gave me, I think it's a similar book uh, for Christmas last year, as you're never going to do this. And every morning, I answer two questions. And at the beginning, I was doing it just because she told me I wouldn't do it. And now I really loved it. And, you know, the questions are, what are you grateful for? You know, what do you want to accomplish? And it's three things that you put in. And I have found it to be cleansing. I have found it to be kind of codifying and all of that. Uh, so I like it a lot. Um, let's, let's just move the, top, the conversation a little bit because I, I want people to understand where you're coming from. Uh, you are such a positive guy, such a good guy. You're so, your energy is so contagious. But, you know, 15 years ago, you were going through a painful divorce um, that you've talked a lot about. You, you, you're one of your best friends that committed suicide. Um, you know, you've hit rock bottom and you've, you've lived in, in very tough times. You know, how, how did you, now looking back on that, uh, how, how do you kind of digest that in, in the narrative of your life? And how does this time period compare to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have given a TED Talk. You could check out afterwards called The Three A's of Awesome. And in that TED Talk, I share the fact that my wife left me and my best friend took his own life in the span of a few days. I didn't do well. I lost weight. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I struggled. It was a really, really painful few years. But in, that, in those few years, you know how I just told you to do I am grateful for? I started a blog called 1000awesomethings.com just as a way to try to think of one good thing every night before I went to bed. I made every single post at 12 to 1 a.m. about snow days, bakery air, finding $5 in your old coat pocket, getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding, flipping to the coals out of the pillow. The blog took off and went viral. It turned into this book called The Book of Awesome. And if you look at the bottom, it's really just my blog, stapled, <laughs> printed out and stapled together. And did that fix everything? No, of course not. We're human beings. We're, we're full of all kinds of complex, twisted parts and emotions and realities. But it helped. With everything I say today, Rick, and with everything I think, the goal with all of this stuff I share is not to be perfect. It's just to be a little better than before. Starting 1000awesomethings.com and writing down one gratitude a day helped me be a little bit better. And that helped me migrate forward a little bit. You know, you know it's, um, I, I think it's important that 
we recognize the time we're in today, right? And the mindset that people are in today. And I think all of us have been through challenges, but I don't think anybody has ever experienced this many things all at the same time with this much uncertainty um, and, and, and with so much pain around us. You know, what, what, what can we do to gain perspective and to practice positive things to help our brains rewire in a time like this? Or do we just have to bear yeah. it and, and, and get to the other side? No, no, no. I absolutely agree. I feel it. I understand as best as I can from where I'm sitting. And, you know, a good friend of mine lost her brother from COVID. He was a frontline doctor in New York City. Uh, my wife's grandmother was in the hospital for three days with COVID symptoms. We thought she had it. And then she got out with pneumonia. It's the first time anyone's ever said about a 90-year-old woman, thank God she's got pneumonia. You know, so we've, we've been feeling some of this too. Of how can you not with 80,000 cases a day? Here's what I'd say. Right now, something's happened inside your brain, Rick, everybody's brain right now. And what the researchers call it is something called cognitive entrenchment. If anyone here has been feeling like a bit like Groundhog Day, that's what that is. Cognitive entrenchment means you start getting into this stable sort of system where you're doing the same thing every day. You kind of lock and load. You got everything sort of set up and you're like, you're not, maybe not, you may not be thriving, but you're doing the same thing all the time. Unfortunately, cognitive entrenchment increases something called mental fragility. And so one thing I really want to advocate with you guys today is I want you to bust out of your mental paradigms. How do you do that? I'll tell you how you do that. I want you to have a weird hobby. Listen to me, have a weird hobby. I know it sounds a bit funny, but in this wonderful book called Range by David Epstein, and I recommend this, this book a lot, he quotes a study that shows that Nobel Prize winners are 22 times, 22 times more likely than their peers to have a strange, unusual, or weird hobby outside their scientific discipline. They're blowing glass, starring as Horatio in the town play and doing magic tricks at kids' birthday parties. I didn't make those examples up. There's a study at Rice University shows that brand new tax accountants can better implement complex tax legislation than the 30-year vets. How do you keep this brain malleable right now? And more importantly, how do you apply incongruent thinking back to your day-to-day -day job so that you don't suffer what's happening right now in a lot of industries, a lot of organizations, a lack of creativity, innovative thinking, new ideas and meetings, challenging, speaking truth to power, that starts starting to go down. Well, the way to do it is you have a weird pandemic hobby. I'll tell you what, Rick, last weekend with a mask on, with a buddy, he, he had a mask on too. We drove three hours, because you can't fly anywhere, so we drove three hours to a provincial park near, near Toronto. And I went scraping around a wet forest at sunrise looking for warblers and gross beaks and, and things I never heard of a year ago. I'm a birder. I know it's a pandemic cliche. I bought the binoculars. I bought the bird bug. It doesn't matter what it is. The point is when you do something outside of your comfort zone, guess what happens? Your learning rate is the steepest when you know the least when you're on that upswing of learning something totally brand new. And the way I define weird, by the way, is something you've never done before that you suck at. That's it. Never done before, suck at it. That's it. Then you apply incongruent ideas back to your day-to-day -day job. It will make you better at work as well and showing up in a better mood for your family and for your friends if you indulge in a slightly eccentric or weird thing outside of your comfort zone. You know, what, what does um, this notion of bend on break uh, and, and feels like, you know, you talk a lot about that and, and it seems like right now we're breaking. What, what does that mean to you, bend on break? Yeah, the biggest buzzword right now in the world is resilience. Um, 
Uh, you mentioned that that's what I've been working on. This is what I've been working on, guys. Um, you know, the title is a bit bombastic, but the subtitle is what I'm really proud of. Uh, how to navigate change, wrestle with failure, and live an intentional life. The way I define resilience in the book is the ability to see the little sliver of light right between the door and the frame after you hear the latch click. Hmm. You asked how I perceive the phrase bend, don't break. It is that. When it feels like there's a door in front of you, not just closing, but locking, can you convince yourself somehow, even just to keep going, even just to be like, let me get through the day, even just to be like, let me add a dot, dot, dot. It's a phrase I use in the book, the ellipses, you know, the idea of the ellipses is just to add a dot, 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 and the word yet. After every sentence, Rick, that you begin with, I can't, I don't, or I won't, I can't speak Chinese, I'm not creative, uh, I'm not a leader, I can't speak Chinese, dot, 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 yet, I'm not creative, dot, 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 yet, I'm not a leader, dot, 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 yet, that ellipses invented in the English language and writing only 500 years ago, it's pretty new, meant to just keep it going. Very cool. You know, you talk a lot about in, in savoring life, simple pleasures, and how it came from the awe that you witnessed your father, who was an immigrant, kind of really marvel at everything in the U.S. Many of the things that all of us take for granted. First of all, what a great word, awe. I just love that word. Um, yeah. And, you know, I wonder if you have practices on how to cultivate awe that you can give us tips. Yeah, so <laughs> the, it sounds a bit esoteric maybe, but I always advocate to people, do you have a three-year-old in your life right now? Do you have someone in your life that can stare at a bug crossing the sidewalk for half an hour who will look slack-jawed at their first baseball game, listen to the crack, crack of the bat, the, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the popcorn? Three, I love hanging out with three-year-olds because three-year-olds are seeing everything for the first time. Cultivating awe is about remembering that you used to be three years old. They're still inside you. They are you. Try to see everything you're seeing as if you're seeing it for the first time. In this crazy spastic universe of overwhelm that we live in, it does take a minute to pause, take a deep breath, look at the trees changing color and just be like, wow, like that leaf is pure bright orange. I can, I can take that home. I can leave it on my kitchen table. That'll be our centerpiece. Like these little moments of connection with things like nature. I mentioned birds for me, things like the shape of a cloud that you'll never see before and you'll never see again. They, if you let them in, can be huge moments of gratitude. It's not easy, but that is the practice to keep embracing your inner three-year-old. Mm. You, uh, you have a point of view that is a little different than, 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 kind of common wisdom in your point of view um, is that, you know, motivation uh, doesn't lead to action. It's the mm -hmm. other around. It's action that leads to motivation. Can yes. In that philosophy? Yes, sure. I wonder if I should write that down. Basically, if you want to run a marathon, yeah. the self-talk most people have is this. Oh, I need the perfect running shoes. I got to get a good playlist. I need a running buddy to wake me up. You know, 
That's the self-talk we all have. If you want to write a novel, you think, I need a perfect moleskin notebook. I got to have a cool coffee shop with dim lighting. I got to have a good idea. But you may remember one of Newton's laws of physics, an object in motion will stay in motion unless an equal or greater force hits it. And I butchered the phrasing, but you know what I'm saying, that right? <laughs> so the secret is actually just to start. It doesn't matter how much you suck at it. Honestly, if you just run to the stop sign in your, in your dress shoes, then you'll think I can do it. And the next day you'll run a little bit more. The playlist, the running buddy, the music, that will follow action, not precede it. Same thing, you wanna write a novel? Just write one sentence before bed. Khalid Husseini wrote The Kite Runner and I saw one of his books recommended a second ago. He's a doctor up in the Bay Area. He said, I just wrote a couple sentences before bed every night. Over a couple of years, it added up to a book. You write one sentence, it's easy to write one more. You write one more, it's easy to write a whole page. Don't pressure yourself for this giant precious version of you that you probably won't get to. Instead, make it the minimum effective dose. Run to the corner, write one sentence, and then watch as the motivation then follows the action. Let me say that again. Motivation does not cause action. Action causes motivation. Very true. So tell us, uh, we have a couple more things. We have five minutes left. What is, uh, explain to us kind of the end of history illusion and how does that play into what happened? Sure. Uh, this, I love all these questions, Rick, because first of all, I can tell you've like read all these books. This is amazing. Yeah, hey, I can't have you here. You're too smart for me to be unprepared. Uh, Daniel Gilbert is one of the most popular positive psychologists ever uh, in the world. So I am a mere shadow of this giant, okay? He's written the famous book called Stumbling on Happiness with the tilted um, kind of bowl of cherries on the front of it. He's kind of one of the fathers of positive psychology. Well, he teamed up with a couple researchers and they looked at 48,000 people and they asked them to a, a version of these two questions, which is this, hey, what happened in the last 10 years of your life? And then this, what do you think is gonna happen in the next 10 years of your life? Uniformly, everyone painted a portrait of this wild 10 years. I moved, I got a new job, I broke up with this person, I got a divorce, I had this kid. My last 10 years has been crazy, it's been wild. And I'm sure everyone watching this can say, yeah, the last 10 years of my life has been like that too. Mm -hmm. But then interestingly, when asked how the next 10 years will go, people do not have the ability to perceive any change. They say, oh, well, I'm sure I'll still be living with my mom or Henry and I will still be together 100%. We have two kids, we'll still have two kids. Why would we have more? That, that's not gonna change. People don't predict the future 10 years to be as tumultuous as the past 10 years. They label this the end of history illusion. Think about this, guys. If you're in the middle of an 80,000 case a day pandemic, working from home, experiencing some of the ennui or some of the like Groundhog Day effect of that, managing the craziness of mom guilt or dad guilt or screen time and the overwhelming stress that you're feeling on you and your family or your kids right now, you have a tendency, not just me, not just you, everybody has a tendency to think it's gonna stay like this. That's the end of history illusion. Instead, what the research just shows, as you won't be surprised is, things in the future change as much as they did in the past. Nobody has a stable 
future decade. Nobody does. And this was a case, by the way, across all genders and ages. So even 80-year-olds and 20-year-olds were saying the same thing. Remember the end of history illusion. If somebody can put in the chat room right now, I wrote a, a whole blog post about this on TED. So TED.com, TED, TED blog. If you just type in my name, end of history illusion, it'll come up. Because what you'll then read is a thousand words of me explaining this concept and sharing how we can remember it in our lives. All right. One more. And I'm going to ask you in 45 seconds. It's too important not to ask, given what everybody's mindset is. Uh, is this notion that, um, you know, around this work-life concept, um, you believe it to be a lot less of a skill and, and much more of a flywheel. Um, much more of a what, sorry? Of a flywheel, you know, something that-, that Yes. Momentum. You, you have parents and caregivers right now on this call that are trying to figure out how do I do all of it? How do I do yes. my job? How do I do yes. all that? What, what advice do you have for them? Because I think this is something that everybody can gain some perspective on. Sure. And I want to just say up front that I stole this idea from Jeff Bezos. I got a chance to see him speak a few years ago and he gave this model. And so I just have simply lifted it from his brain. And I wanted to say that up front. So here's the thing that he said that really resonated with me. And I want to share this as well. We think that because we have a finite amount of time in a given week, we have to divide that time between work and what we call quote unquote life. And that work-life separation is important, but you know what? You, you got you got also only a certain amount of time. So it's like, every long dinner and dishes you do at night pulls you away from two or three hours from the emails you might be getting or vice versa. However, what Jeff said, what resonates with me and what I'd like to say to you is it's not one of these little balance things. It's not, it's a flywheel. You know, that thing you sometimes see like in the middle of a river, I don't know, or in like an old picture book where it's like that thing that it fills with water and it turns. Okay. I'm, I'm showing my urban roots here. I don't know what the, it's a flywheel. The more energy you get from work, the more present you are in the meeting, the more participative you are, the more you speak truth to power, the more you share your work, the more you lean into the team, the more you do that, the more energy you get from that and the better you show up as the mom or dad or sister or brother or boyfriend or girlfriend or son or daughter or whatever when you're home. Then when you show up in positive spirits with high energy for your kids, leaning into that big dinner and ditching your phone for a little bit, all that stuff, then guess what? That fulfilling night you just spent with your family gives you energy that keep that flywheel turning. So the next morning you show up and guess what? Yeah, you didn't have your phone at night. You didn't check the 10 p.m. emails and you're modeling Rick's behavior on that. But also you show up with even more energy and your day now is crisper. You have better ideas. You get more done. You get rid of the stuff you don't need to do. It's a flywheel. Is it easy to do that? No, but think of it like a flywheel and it will be one. The energy you get out of a great day at work will give you more fulfillment as a parent and the energy you do it for a great night with your family will give you more energy the next day at work. Listen, it is a perfect question to end that because there is, without a doubt, you have put a lot of energy in everybody's flywheel today. Um, for that, I am eternally grateful. Uh, but listen, I, I, I'm grateful for your friendship and thank you for kind of getting us all inspired. Thank you, Neil, for the amazing shot in the arm of positive energy. So valuable, but especially in a time like now. The three things I took from this conversation are, number one is the power of routines. Lately, I've been focused a lot on the power of our habits. But the insight here is that it is our routines that are the building blocks that allow us to build the better habits. So let's focus on that. 
Number two is seeing the world the way we saw it as kids. The ability to be in awe more often is something we all can and should cultivate. Bottom line is there are things all around us worth of our awe. And number three is the concept of the end of history illusion. We as humans are constantly looking for certainty and tend to project what we feel today indefinitely to the future. Instead, we should remind ourselves that this too shall pass and that the sun will rise again after the storm passes. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.